Welcome to the NASPP's Equity Expert Podcast Series. My name is Kathleen Cleary, and I'm the Education Director for the NASPP. Today, we're going to be speaking with Joshua Sheck and Rich Baker from Morgan Stanley, and we're going to talk about 10B51 plans, an area where we get an awful lot of questions at the NASPP. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this podcast is actually one of a series of podcasts on various topics primarily related to equity and careers in equity. You can access the entire podcast series at naspp.com. It's under the NASPP voice, and it's also under educational programs. If you use a podcast app, you can also find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. So as I mentioned, we're going to talk about 10B51 plans, which are becoming more and more popular, and it seems for more levels of employees, too, beyond just Section 16 insiders. So in order to help answer some of the questions that we get in about best practices and what a plan should include, we've got two great industry experts to talk with us today. So let me introduce them and tell you a little bit about them. So first, we have Josh Sheck. He's an executive director at Morgan Stanley whereas he is the manager of the 10B51 trading desk. Couldn't have a better speaker, right? He's responsible for building the daily 10B51 order book and executing trading strategies for senior executives at some of the world's most prestigious companies. He also acts as the program manager for Morgan Stanley's proprietary 10B51 order management system, helping to develop and to enhance its risk management capabilities. Josh has a BA in economics and business from Lafayette College, an MS in biology, an MBA from Adelphi University, and he is a CFA chart holder. We also have Rich Baker with us today. He's an executive director at Morgan Stanley's market-leading executive financial services desk, where he provides corporations and their executives with needed clarity on the rules, insight into industry practices, and services for clients to access their value in their equity. Rich runs the 10B51 plan management team, which adopts and manages all the rule 10B51 plans at Morgan Stanley. Rich joined Morgan Stanley in 2008 after completing his MBA at Lubin School of Business at Pace University, where he was given the Finance Department Award and named the Birnbaum Scholar. He's also a certified equity professional and a member of the Curriculum Committee of the CEP Institute. As a board member of One Spirit, he helps to guide the nonprofit organization in their mission to alleviate poverty and pursue economic development on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. Rich also regularly volunteers for the Kellogg Morgan Stanley Sustainable Investing Challenge and SIFMA's Invest Right competition. We couldn't have two better speakers today. So welcome to the podcast, Josh and Rich. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks. Really appreciate it, Kathleen. Kathleen, excited to be here. Thanks so much. Well, I'm excited to have you and talk about this topic. As I mentioned, we do get a lot of questions at the NESPP about this. It seems to be a topic that's talked about more and more each day. So let's start with kind of a basic question. So when a company is looking to define their 10B51 eligible population, what should they be thinking about? And should they require or strongly encourage the use of a 10B51 plan? That's a great question. A lot of uh, a lot of companies struggle over who should be in plans. 
and, uh, and how big their program should be. Just to set the background, the use of plans continues to be widespread. Looking at filings in 2019, 58% of the S&P 500 companies utilize 10B51 plan to some extent. However, are you requiring the use of plans? Are you strongly encouraging is a great sort of aspect of that. In our 2018 survey of companies, 49% of them required or strongly encouraged the C-suite, but not others. And 42% required or strongly encouraged their their board of directors. So at least there's a focus on putting the, the top executives and the board members into plans. But you know, when you look at the overall population, plans are most appropriate for people who expect to have sort of limited access to trading windows, either because they have regular exposure to, to material non-bulk information, because they run a business line, or because they just have financial information and those sorts of things in their hands. Obviously, the C-suite and the board fit that, but companies also find that you know, a handful of people uh, additionally who run business lines or are playing sort of treasury or financial planning roles, that may make sense for them as well. So if you look overall, we see like small and mid-sized company, companies having anywhere from five to 20 participants, depending on how they're structured. And then uh, for the larger companies, maybe 30 or more, but that's about the general population. And the one thing uh, I'll add there is when, when we start talking about that design decision around requiring or strongly encouraging, because obviously there's, there's a big difference there, just remember, right, if you're going to require the use of plans, just be mindful about some of the probable or potential exceptions to that situation. So if you strongly encourage plans, you can make them feel like they're mandatory, but what you can do there is avoid uh, the probable need at some point to find an exception to your policy for what's going to end up being some sort of scenario where an individual is going to need to be able to transact outside of a 10B51 plan. So we've definitely seen situations where the company requires the use of a plan, one of their executives maybe has an upcoming RSU vest, for example, and there's a tax obligation behind it uh, in which they're required to sell shares to cover it. And maybe that individual six months ago or eight months ago just neglected to include that in their 10B51 plan. And the time comes, uh, the RSU vest, and they need to pay their tax bill on it. Uh, but they don't have the ability to sell shares because it wasn't part of their 10B51 plan. So now you're potentially seeking an exception to your policy uh, where if maybe you strongly encouraged it, uh, that exception wouldn't be needed. Well, that's true. And, and I guess what came to my mind as you were speaking is that also life happens. So there could be a disability or something else that comes up too that might cause the need for an exception from the plans as well. Those things are always out there. So as we're talking about these plans, are there some key items that an issuer would want to be sure to address in their 10B51 policy? Oh, sure. Just overall, uh, at a higher level, what we're seeing is that having specific 10B51 guidelines, either in the insider trading policy or maybe it's its own standalone policy, is becoming much more common. And in our, in our most recent survey uh, that Rich mentioned from 2018, when we compare that to one we did in 2015, we do see that 
significant increase of companies are including topics in their policies that are specific to 10B51 plan topics, such as cooling off periods, amendments, terminations, plan length, and trading outside of a plan. And these become really important uh, to see because Rule 10B51 itself actually doesn't provide clear guidelines on many of these topics. So at the end of the day, it's left up to the company to provide guidance to their executives and to put together a program and policy that eventually would be seen positively by investors and regulators. And I think, Rich, uh, you're going to touch a little bit upon one of those very hot topics, which is cooling off periods. Yeah, I think that's a key item. And you know, that's sort of a good place to start when you're, you're looking at the items you want to put in your policies. Cooling off period, by that we mean it's a time between when a plan is signed and when it starts trading. And this is an important element. In order to get the affirmative defense that 10B51 has, you have to have not had the MMPI, the material non-public information, when you sign the plan. And so trades very close to the date that you sign it. There could be some question about whether you had the MMPI when the trade happened. Might you also have had the MMPI uh, when you signed the plan? And so, you know, we've seen a trend toward a longer wait, uh, a longer cooling off period before the plan starts trading, and companies are putting that into their policy. And this is likely due to the the attention that that's been given this specific item, both in the Wall Street Journal article from 2012, 2013. And then proctor advisors and other other industry commentators have have consistently brought this up as an issue. The number of companies who do not require a cooling off period actually dropped quite a bit from our 2015 survey, where it was 28% either had a less than 30-day cooling off period or did not have any cooling off period. Uh, That was 28% in 2015, dropped to 19% in 2018. So, you know, at this point, 81% have some sort of 30 days or longer cooling off period, which really seems that the industry has coalesced around needing that extra space. What length they choose varies, 30 days being the most common choice with 43% of the companies in our 2018 survey. But, you know, 45, 60, 90 are also options. And uh, as with many of these policies you're talking about, you don't have to put it all down in black and uh, necessarily as a strict requirement, but um, for this, you, you may want to put a, a minimum cooling off period. The, the longer cooling off period can be, can be done if you want the CEO or somebody who's going to be a little bit more publicly exposed uh, to have a longer cooling off period. That can be an agreement, like Josh was saying, with the uh, strongly encouraged, not required, but that may also, a longer requirement may focus your employees on sort of longer term planning and help dissuade them from sort of frequently coming in and out of a plan or changing their direction. So, Rich and Josh, you've mentioned a couple of times some survey data. I wonder if you might maybe give our listeners a little more information on who the survey covers and it sounds like an annual survey maybe. Yeah, sure. So we we actually did our first one in 2015, and that was with the Society of Corporate Governance and their their member organizations, as well as in partnership with Shearman and Sterling. 
And we, we did that survey in 2015 and then in 2018, we refreshed it, but this time with the NASPP and their member organizations and also in partnership with Sherman and Sterling. Great, thank you. Do we have anything else to talk about with issuers and their 10B51 plans or are we ready to move on, or the policies? Sure, Kathleen, I, I wanted to just touch on, and I don't think it would be a, a conversation about 10B51 plans without talking about amendments and terminations for, for a minute. Of course, you know, these tend to be some of the more highly traffic topics when it comes to 10B51 policies. And what we've seen in our survey data, of course, is that amendments and terminations are fairly commonplace. Uh, depending on the survey, it's well over 80% of issuers or respondents to our survey that are allowing amendments or terminations to take place. Of course, with varying rules around when and how, but what you hear in, in the marketplace a lot is, you know, amendments and terminations uh, are discouraged and should be tried and individuals should try to avoid them when possible. However, uh, it's important to have a strong policy or procedure around them so that when your executive, again, depending on their situation, needs to amend or terminate for a very specific reason, they are following uh, your company's guidelines around them. That makes sense. I think that, you know, kind of goes to what I said a little a uh, bit ago about, you know, life circumstances, things happen, you might need to amend a plan. So season parameters around it are are crucial. So let's talk about companies. Now they, um, you know, they have executives submitting plans that they would like to adopt. What key items should a company look for when they're reviewing a draft of a 10B51 plan? Another great question. So I think many companies start with the approach, of course, as a, as a matter of pre-clearance and compliance, just like you would in an open window trade. So, you know, they'll start with, do you have any material non-public information? And do you actually have these shares? Are you, can you make all of our, our general representations? Does this fall within our policy? Is the window open? That sort of thing. But there are also sort of additional ones that would apply to 10B51 because it's a much more detailed and involved item and it involves uh, trades that may happen in the future. And so what companies tend to, to look at are things like, do you have to comply with stock ownership and holding requirements? And if you sell all of the shares that are potentially to be sold under this plan, will that meet those requirements? You know, when, when we looked at it in the survey, we asked companies, you know, what were their, their key concerns about one plans and more than 60% said they were concerned with stock ownership and holding requirements. So that's, that's a key item if you have that policy for your company. But then also you want to look at the specific trades and make sure you understand how they're going to happen. You want to avoid things like, you know, will the shares be vested by the time they're sold? When, when's the first date they could possibly sell and, and will that be on or, on or after the vest date, particularly for options? What's the timing on RSUs? Does it include a provision for shares to be withheld for RSU vests? So that the tax for tax purposes, they'll be withheld or sold to cover taxes, and then the net shares may be included in a plan. You may want to include just a, a check sheet that will have you go down these items and make sure that 
the shares and the grants that are included in these documents line up with the shares and grants that the, the employee actually has. So it really makes sense to have someone looking at, you know, stock admin, stock plan administrator, an internal person, look at that, the actual schedule and make sure they understand how it's going to happen and that, that the, the plan will, will not hit any of these pitfalls we're talking about. Sometimes we see, for instance, an executive who interprets their own vesting schedule. Like they, they say, well, I got these options and they're going to invest, they're going to invest 25% and then 136 for the next three years after that. Um, 25% the first year, 136. And they do their own little calculation about what 136 is, but for rounding errors or um, when the actual vest date is and the vest date may be, may be different than the grant date, et cetera, those sorts of complications can come in and they don't, uh, they don't really understand those, those details like a stock plan administrator would. And so then you get into problems because once the plan is signed and you're down the road, it's tough to find a, a good way to back out of that and correct for errors. Yeah, if you're correcting for errors, does it accidentally amend the plan? Having been on the administrator side, that would be my first concerns. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Great point. So you guys are deep in the trenches every day. What do you see day to day that companies are not thinking about in the administration of their 10B51 plans? I think the most important thing is items that happen outside of a plan, and that may be events that are occurring at the company and they may not think of it the first thought of course may not may not be that hey by the way this there's a 1051 plan that this would be affected but it's something you need to flag for for a bunch of things one would be if you have sell to cover RSUs going on that sale needs to be reported to the broker who's doing the 10B51 plan, sometimes that's different. So you, you may have the sell to cover going on at your stock plan provider and a 10B51 provider is doing the, the actual net share sales but or, or maybe selling options or something entirely different. But if the, if the, for a 144 affiliate, if the broker that's doing the 10B51 doesn't know about the RSU sale, they may not be capturing that on the 144 like they should. So they need to be kept in the loop for that. Other things are major corporate events like mergers or acquisitions, tender offers, change of control things. Those can obviously significantly impact the 10B51. We had a situation where, and I won't name names here, but you know, for instance, there was a merger going on. We weren't told ahead of time that this was happening. The merger triggered a lockup for an executive shares. And the executive reached out and told us, instead of the company telling us, but the executive reached out and told us, but didn't think that it, the, the lockup applied to his wife's trust that we were also selling a 10B51 under. But unfortunately it did, but we didn't find that out until after the merger was announced and the, the shares were sold. And then we had to sort of scramble to figure out what we do with that. But those sorts of corporate actions are very important to mention. and. You know, anytime you have a large action, actions that can affect a large a variety of shareholders, and particularly your executives, you, know, you just need to put on your checklist, is there a 10 one plan in place for these people? And does this affect the 10 one and all? And circle up with your council to, to figure that out. 
Another item we see is a change in status uh, for executives, whether they're going from, they're getting promoted from a, a non-officer to an officer. We, we very often have situations where they're a non-officer, they have a 1051 plan in place, they get promoted to an officer, but that means that the next sale may require a Form 4 filing and a 144 filing. So we need to get notified of that as quickly as possible and get paperwork in place, and particularly the 144 form signed, so that we can file that timely with the SEC, because that has to happen before the sale does. So um, those sorts of things, but also the other direction, when they go from an officer to a non-officer, we gotta, uh, we got to make sure we handle that correctly and that we're filing forms for as long as is appropriate. But then all the way to if the employee is getting terminated, either voluntarily or involuntarily, we need to understand what will happen to the equity that's included in the 1051 plans. We may need to terminate sooner or later, but it's something where we, we just need to be good partners and circle up and, and make sure that we're taking care of that situation. Yeah, communication in all these types of matters between your brokers, your executives, and the company is so critical. So let me ask you this question. Are companies becoming more concerned about uh, trade schedule optics? And Josh, when we talked about this question, I know I asked you, what do you really mean by that? So maybe we should start with a little explanation of what we mean by trade schedule optics and then talk about if that's a concern for companies. Sure, Kathleen. And what we mean by trade schedule optics are what's the perception of the marketplace going to be, whether it's investors or just general inquiry around how your company stock trades. After uh, sales occur under your 10B51 plan and are publicly reported either through a Form 4 or 144 filing, what type of perception is going to be out there after the fact, because once the 10B51 plan is in place, outside of potentially being able to amend or terminate, your hands are pretty much tied. And having a, a strong conversation around what the potential scenarios may look like once I adopt this plan, I think is an important conversation for all parties involved to have, whether that's you know the client, the company, and the broker, so everyone understands what could or could not happen. Uh, with the designed plan that's being put in place. And these are conversations that are very common for us to have on a daily basis. And we went out and asked in the most recent survey with the NESPP if you know certain parameters or certain pieces of this conversation are concerning uh, to companies. And we, we, we've got some uh, pretty interesting data back showing that Certain items such as the frequency of potential sales when talking about trade schedule optics are of concern to the company. Of course, the number of shares that may be pledged or part of the plan are of concern. Uh, Also around the use of price floors or limit prices uh, is something that everyone's talking about, I think, during that plan design phase. Especially a lot with, with newer companies, we see those who are not used to adopting these plans, an executive may have a really uh, strong idea around maybe wanting to participate in the marketplace on a daily basis uh, so they can achieve some sort of uh, average price over the period of their plan. 
But again, they're just not thinking about the frequency of form four filings. And if you have multiple executives with a similar strategy, now each day, Bloomberg terminals around the street are just lighting up with these different uh, news feeds around your insider's transactions. Also, a, a common topic that we talk a lot about is a particular price points and the, again, the number of shares that are being sold at those particular price points where executives uh, and companies are concerned around is, you know, is a particular limit price after that transaction occurs and becomes public going to signal some sort of ceiling or floor to the marketplace in terms of what that executive thinks, how that company stock should be trading. Yeah, I, I've definitely heard that concern. I think that's something that um, that comes out often with executive trades in general. So let me ask you about smaller market cap companies that, that you know who have a lower average daily trading volume. They must always be concerned with insider selling because potentially selling can influence the stock price. So how can a 10B51 program help maybe ease some of those concerns? Yeah, Kathleen, I'll, I'll take that. You know, definitely with a lower volume security, whether it's small cap, even some mid caps as well, there's going to be a lot of concern when you have multiple insiders, especially entering the marketplace on similar days, just naturally creating additional supply and potentially putting uh, downward pressure on the company stock price. Where a 10B51 program is helpful is when you're working with a broker dealer that has a centralized 10B51 desk. And, and that's the important part of this conversation because with a centralized 10B51 desk, uh, that can help ease some of the concerns uh, around putting too much pressure on company stock price. What's most likely going to be the case when you're adopting these plans is you're going to give that broker discretion on how to execute the transaction. So when you have a central team, what they can do is, is create a daily order book for the company, develop a strategy that's going to help the executives, of course, meet their goal of diversification, but also that strategy is going to keep in mind how to attempt to mitigate the impact uh, on company stock price. So for example, that strategy could be putting some sort of aggregate volume limit across all the executives in the market on a given day to some sort of percentage of volume. So maybe you have five execs in the marketplace on the same day, but that broker may not exceed 10% or 15% of the volume. Again, not necessarily written into the contract, but that broker has discretion has an understanding of how to trade that stock uh, and help everyone uh, meet their goals and needs. And the broker watching that every day too, so they probably have some great insight into how to set controls and um, be sure that they're monitoring that. Well, this has been a great podcast. Are there any final thoughts that you want to leave with our listening audience, either Rich or Josh? Yeah, Kathleen, I think, Several points throughout here, we've talked about you know, needing to develop checklists or uh, needing to, to talk to your partners, whether that's 10 one providers, stock fund providers, councils, et cetera. I think those are the key, key elements you, you should think about, making sure you have those communication lines and checklists in place, both as you're adopting plans 
and as you're maintaining them throughout the life of the plan. Yeah, that's great guidance. Thank you. And actually, uh, you know, this has been a great podcast. I know I've certainly learned some new things today, so I love it when I get to learn something new too. And I hope everyone listening got some good details and some good guidance, maybe things you can take back to your company and put in place to make this area of stock administration a little easier at your company. Josh and Rish, I just want to say thanks so much for your time today and sharing your expertise with our listeners. Thanks to our audience for listening in. And I just want to remind everyone you can access all the podcasts in the Equity Experts series at naspp.com or search your podcast app for Equity Expert. Thanks, everyone.